following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right. We are in Hebrews, and I think we're in our fourth week. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, and today we're going to go through a passage that we went through last week, but we're going to pull something different out of that passage today. So I'm going to start by simply reading the passage. And then we'll jump into our discussion of it. So I'm not going to read every single part of the passage from last week. I'm going to condense it just a bit to focus on the key parts we're looking at this morning. I'm going to begin in Hebrews 2, verse 10. It only makes sense that God, by whom and for whom everything exists, would choose to bring many of us to his side by using suffering to perfect Jesus, the founder of our faith and the pioneer of our salvation. As I will show you, it's important that the one who brings us to God and those who are brought to God become one since we are all from one Father. This is why Jesus was not ashamed to call us his family. Since we, the children, are all creatures of flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood so that by dying he could destroy the one who held power over death, that is, the devil, and destroy the fear of death that has always held people captive. So notice... His concern here is not for the welfare of the heavenly messengers, but for the children of Abraham. He had to become as human as his sisters and brothers, so that when the time came, he could become a merciful and faithful high priest of God, called to reconcile a sinful people. And since he has also been tested by suffering, he can help us when we are tested. So last week we talked about what it means to be a brother and a sister of Jesus. And I mentioned we'll talk later on in Hebrews more specifically about the role that Jesus plays as a high priest. But today I want to talk about suffering. I want to look at two questions. Number one, what did suffering accomplish in the life of Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? And then what are the implications about what suffering can accomplish in the life of us who are Christians? So first of all, this idea that Jesus is made perfect through suffering, depending on your translation, they might give a slightly different set of words to describe this. And if your translation does use different wording, frankly, you probably have a better translation because the made perfect, when we think of it simply of how we think of things being perfect, it's going to distort what the biblical writer was trying to convey. This idea of perfection has to do with a mission being completed or consummated. There was a job set before them, and they did it. There's a couple other verses in the New Testament that use the same word that is translated here as perfect. In Luke 13, Jesus says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. So this idea of finishing the course and accomplishing the work is the same word that's used to convey the idea that Jesus was perfected. He had finished his course. He had accomplished the work he came to do here on earth. And because his mission was to bring salvation, his mission could not occur without suffering. You can't have crucifixion without the suffering that goes with crucifixion. So when we talk about suffering perfecting Jesus, we're saying his perfection, the completion of his mission, was dying for us and rising again for us. In order to get there, he had to go through the suffering. So suffering was the process, the unavoidable process, that brought him to the completion of his mission of bringing us salvation and redemption. 
And of course, we're the beneficiaries of this mission of Christ. I like the way John Piper has described this. He said, one great aim of God in salvation is that he have a great unified family of children with Jesus Christ being both essentially different from and yet deeply united to his other human brothers and sisters, both really different and really like. But if all the brothers and sisters in the family have experienced suffering except one, the unity is jeopardized. And so for the sake of the common spirit of unity and sympathy and camaraderie, even in suffering, Christ takes on human nature and he leads many sons and daughters to glory and into his brotherhood through suffering and through death. So Jesus' mission is made perfect by his sacrifice for us and the sacrifice could not happen without his suffering. I was reading a one commentary that gave an analogy of what it's like to go through what's called the fatal funnel. Now, I've never experienced this, but I've talked to people who have. And if you've been in the military or perhaps you're on a SWAT team with a police force, you go through something that looks like this. Go ahead, go to the next slide. That as you go through a doorway, you'll at times go into a situation there is no cover The first person who goes into that door is exposed to the worst that the enemy has to give to them. They're the point man or the point woman, right? The first one that goes through. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus dying for us. We all have this spiritual fatal funnel that we're fated to go through on our own without Christ. This is part of the fearsomeness of judgment that someday we've got to stand before a holy God and the wrath of that holy God is focused on that sin. That's our fatal funnel. There's nothing to protect us. But Jesus through his death and through his resurrection says, I'll take the point. I'll be the first one through. I will take everything upon me that you deserve to take upon you. And in this case, it's his suffering and it's his death for our sake. And this is one reason he is such a great high priest, as his passage mentions. He understands us, for one, but he takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve. Once again, I'm going to save that for a couple weeks down the road when the writer of Hebrews gets into that in more details. But one thing I really want us to to remember is that because Jesus became one of us and suffered for us, he understands us. This is a key thing about the suffering of Jesus, He doesn't ask us to suffer alone and misunderstood. That his coming to earth and his being with us and suffering the way he did is meant to send a clear message that he understands. If we bring to him our sorrows and our pain and our anxiety and our frustration, our whatever it is, Jesus understands. He's not aloof and cold. He's not just kind of puzzling intellectually about what it must be like to suffer. God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, suffered with us. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Disease, sickness of body, poverty, need, friendlessness, hopelessness, desertion. He knows all these. You cannot cast human suffering into any shape that is new to Christ. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. If you feel a thorn in your foot, remember that one has pierced his head. If you have a trouble or a difficulty, you may see there the mark of his hands, for he has climbed that way before. 
The whole path of sorrow has his blood bedabbled footsteps all along. For the man of sorrows has been there, and he can now have sympathy with you. Yes, I hear one say, but my sorrows are the result of sin. Well, so were his, though not his own, yet the result of sin they were. Yes, you say, but I am slandered and I cannot bear it. And Spurgeon says, drink thy little cup and see what a cup he drained. It's not just that Jesus understands us, but he understands us far more than we can ever comprehend. If we have suffered a little, he has suffered greatly. He did it from love, right? He did it from love, but we are not alone in our suffering. We have a Savior who understands us. And if God allowed suffering to be the thing that perfected the mission of Jesus, I think we have to at least wrestle with the fact that God is going to allow suffering to perfect our mission here on earth as well. Just a couple examples from Scripture. I'm going to spend the rest of the time this morning kind of wrestling with this idea. And we don't have Message Plus this morning because of the potluck, but you're welcome to hunt me down after the sermon. We can have our own little Message Plus if you would like, but let's at least get in line first. So remember the parable of the wise man, the foolish man? One builds his house on the sand, one builds his house on the rock. You know what they both have in common? They go through the storm. The wise man who built his house on the rock didn't avoid the storm. He was simply grounded when the storm hit, and his house was not washed away. The question wasn't if the wise man was going to go through the storm. The question was how the wise man was going to go through the storm. Jeremiah is a good Old Testament example of a prophet of God who was on mission for God and whom God used mightily. Some interesting things about Jeremiah. Jeremiah suffered. Practically everywhere he went, he suffered while he was on mission for God. And then he ended up being exiled with the Jews. In fact, Jeremiah wrestled with this so poignantly at one point. This is Jeremiah 20, beginning at verse 7. He claims that God tricked or seduced him into following God because Jeremiah was expecting this, I think, life of ease in some fashion. And God said, oh, I'll put you on mission. And Jeremiah said, awesome. And then God put Jeremiah on mission, and it was a hard mission, a mission that God blessed and that God used powerfully. But Jeremiah had to go through suffering. Paul has a thorn in his flesh that God leaves with him. Paul pleads, please take this away. And God says, "Uh, no, you get to keep that. It's my gift to you. We're going to come back to this a little bit more later. But God seems to be content to let life be hard sometimes. So let's talk a little bit about different kinds of suffering and how suffering can be used by God to perfect us. And by that, I mean perfect our ministry, our impact in the world. So suffering. Suffering, we can simply define it as undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. And there's a number of different ways this happens. One, and I think this is the primary meaning of this passage, is that it's suffering for the sake of our faith. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, there's plenty of other passages that just deal with the suffering in life. So I feel comfortable talking about it in broader terms this morning. But in this passage of Hebrews, I do think it's focusing on suffering for Christ. This is persecution. This is martyrdom. Uh, I'm going to get a little bit in how this can be other ways as well. It can just be the fight against sin. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to count the cost. 
he told the people around him, don't be foolish. Everybody who commits to something counts the cost of their commitment. It will cost you something to commit to me. So Jesus says, consider that. You need to know what I'm asking you to do if you're going to follow me. So suffering for the sake of our faith. We could suffer because life is hard. Right now the people in North Carolina are suffering because of a natural disaster. Sometimes life is hard. We can suffer because Satan attacks us. The Bible gives us clear examples that sometimes we're in the crosshairs of evil and things are thrown at us that we don't necessarily deserve, but we have to go through them anyway. Sometimes we suffer because we pursue sin. And we will, in some sense, reap the things that we sow. Sometimes we suffer because others sin against us. Sometimes we suffer because God prunes us. There can be lots of reasons that we suffer. I think we can get caught up sometimes in trying to figure out, why am I experiencing this particular thing in my life? Um, I, I don't know that that will necessarily be clear on this side of heaven. Maybe it is. Maybe there's things that are obvious to you in a given situation, but maybe not. But one thing I know is that God allows suffering. And somehow in God's plan, he can use the suffering in the lives of his children to refine them and perfect them and build them in the mission that he has for them. So we're going to wrestle a little bit more with that this morning. But I think it's important we describe what our mission is, first of all. If we're going to talk about being perfected for a mission, what is it? I think it's simple. If you're a follower of Jesus, your mission is to glorify God. That's your mission, to exalt Jesus by your life and your words. The Great Commission falls under this, right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. That's your words. That's your life. We exalt and we glorify God through our life and our words. That's our mission. So as I go through some other ways in which suffering can, can be used by God to perfect us in that mission, just keep in mind, that's what I'm building from. We might have smaller missions in our lives. If you have a family, you have a mission in your family. You might have jobs and vocations that are missions. There's a mission field all around us. But if we're looking for, as a Christian, what is the thing that God intends for me above all else? is to exalt and glorify God through my life and my words. So how does suffering play into this? Number one, it unifies us with Jesus. I'm reading here from Romans 8, beginning in verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we now cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. But I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. I love the idea of being a co-heir with Christ of the glory that God has to offer. But there's a little asterisk here. If we indeed share in his sufferings, the order that we may share in his glory. Now, I think once again, right there, that's talking about suffering for the sake of being on the mission for Christ. It could be literal persecution, but it could be the war within. 
as we climb up on the altar every day and lay our life down for Jesus. It's our thoughts, it's our desires, it's our words, it's our attitudes, it's our actions. What does Paul say? I die daily. This too is sacrificing and suffering for the cause of Christ because I want to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And I know God is working in me to do that. And I have his word that shows me the path. And I have the Holy Spirit in me that's doing a work. Okay, there's, there's going to be some hurt going on at times in my life as a Christian because there's some work to do in me. There's remodeling. And I don't just mean repainting. I mean knocking out walls, putting in new foundations, It's going to be a lot going on in the life of Anthony and in your life as well. I think that's part of the suffering for the sake of Christ. You could walk away. You could say, this is too hard. It's too messy. It's asking too much of me. There's so much inside of me that has this inclination to do my own thing, and it looks like so much fun, and at times it feels so good. That looks like the good life. Now, that leads to its own kind of suffering. It'll lead there eventually. If you don't experience it right away, you will. But Jesus says, oh, no, I'll do a good thing in you. That, too, will take suffering. But I'll do a good thing in you as a result of that. So it unifies us with Jesus. I was reading a commentary this week, and a guy named McLaren, I like how he summarized it. Conflict, not progress, is the word that defines man's path from darkness into light, No holiness is won by any other means than this, that wickedness should be slain day by day and hour by hour, in long lingering agony often, with the blood of the heart pouring out of every quivering vein, you are to cut right through the life and being of that sinful self, to do what the word does, pierce to the dividing asunder of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and get rid by crucifying and slaying. A long process, a painful process of your own sinful self. And not until you can stand up and say, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, have you accomplished that to which you are consecrated and vowed by your sonship. That is, being conformed to the likeness of his death and knowing the fellowship of his suffering. It is in God's intended purpose for us to share in his glory as we share in the sufferings of Christ. Number two, suffering refines us. James chapter one, beginning in verse two, don't run from tests and hardships, brothers and sisters. As difficult as they are, you will ultimately find joy in them. If you embrace them, your faith will blossom under pressure and teach you true patience as you endure. And true patience, brought on by endurance, will equip you to complete the long journey and cross the finish line. Mature, complete, wanting nothing, perfected. That's the idea there. The beginning of verse 2 always gets me. Don't run from tests and hardship. Eventually you enjoy them. Excuse me? But can you think of examples where because you are a follower of Christ, you have been convicted, I need to move into places of hardship because God demands it of me and because God will be glorified in my obedience to him. I I use this example a lot. Um, I want you guys to know, Sheila and I have a good marriage. 
I talk a lot about the times we've struggled. One of the reasons I talk about that is because we have a good marriage because we struggled. I remember years ago, uh, someone encouraging this idea of when you have conflict, you don't run away from conflict in your marriage, you walk into it. And that vision has stuck with me for a long time. How do I walk into conflict? Not because I enjoy conflict, but because God is glorified if I humbly and obediently walk into situations where there is tension, there's hurt, there's shame, whatever is going on, there's anger, and rather than avoiding it, I I put myself in a position of desperate need and say, oh, dear God, work in this situation. I'm just going to show up. You're going to have to do a miracle because Anthony does not have the wisdom to figure this out. You know what? God has been faithful over and over in those situations. It happens with my friends. It happens here in church. Walking into things that I, would, that I want to run away from, but I have to walk into. We have to have unity in the body of Christ. You can't be unified if you avoid. You can't love by avoiding. You'll have opportunity to repent if you avoid. We'll have the opportunity to forgive. We'll have the opportunity to grow if we avoid. You know what happens when my wife and I talk, and I'll broaden this out, when my friends and I talk, when we have conflict, when something comes up here in the church and there's some type of conflict we walk through, I believe God's goal is to mature us in those moments, to refine us, to help us grow up. But we've got to walk into it. We've got to walk into it. Testing and hardship, they refine us. As difficult as they are, you'll ultimately find joy in them. This last week, twice in, in different situations, actually this happened three times this last week, in my small group, in worship team practice, and in staff meeting, I just sat there thinking, Thank you, God, for this group of people. Like, I love this group of people, and I love this church. And in every one of those groups, there's people in there I've had conflict with before. It's just the way life goes. But you know what we did? We walked into that conflict. All parties did. All parties walked into it, had good, honest, healthy conversations with the help of God working and the Holy Spirit present. Man, okay, so don't run from tests and hardships. The difficult they are. There's joy in them if you embrace them. Look what happens if you embrace them. Right, God? God allows hardship to refine us. At times, I believe he brings up the pruning aspect. He brings us testing and trials. It is to refine us, to help us to grow. I have a slide with a whole bunch of other verses in the Bible. This is just a snapshot of how many times the Bible says this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The firing pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. So the Lord tries hearts. I'll turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away all the dross. I take away tin. This is a alloy kind of discussion for all of you who like metals. He shall purify and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. You, God, have proved us. You have tried us as silver is tried. 
our light affliction, which is for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I think this maturity is spiritual maturity. It's relational maturity. It's emotional maturity. It's what, it's what God does to build us. Oswald Chambers once wrote, sorrow burns up a great amount of shallowness. Who's with me on that? Sorrow makes you deep. Suffering makes you deep if you walk into it with the help of Christ. It burns away the shallowness. I was reading one article this week, and they quoted a dude, and I don't know who they quoted. So I just have it in my notes as a wise man once said. I got theology in seminary, but I learned reality through trials. I got facts in Sunday school, but I learned faith through trusting God in difficult circumstances. I got truth from studying, but I got to know the Savior through suffering. Nothing's wrong with theology in Sunday school and studying. In fact, there's everything good about them. But there's something about that experience of the hardship of life that does a work in us. Number three, it gives us the opportunity to display the sufficiency of grace. So now we're back to Paul. In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then Christ in Paul is strong. Now, I don't know about you. I don't typically boast about my weaknesses. I'm not typically delighted in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties because from my perspective, when I'm weak, I'm weak. So you all know I had a heart attack two and a half years ago, something like that. I uh, found out a week or two ago I have blood clots again, which is just stupid. It's the third time I've had blood clots now, so now I get to wear tight stockings and take blood thinners. And then Thursday I was moving furniture, and I just wrenched my back like you would not believe I could barely walk Friday. I shuffled around yesterday. Today, I'm actually decent. Uh, man, I don't del- it is hard for me to delight in any of those things. But you know what happens when I'm, I'm weak in a practical sense? One thing it reminds me of is that Okay, I want to think of how to phrase this because it reminds me of a couple things. I don't like being helped. It's kind of, it's, if I use a great spiritual term, it's humbling. I'm going to go with humiliating. I don't, I don't like asking for help. I'm like, boys, I need you home this weekend to move furniture around because dad is old and hurt. <laughs> You know, I spent the last week not doing much. I'm not I'm supposed to stay off my feet for a bit because of these blood clots and not be too active. Uh, so I, I'm not helping Sheila like I normally would. And I, okay, sorry, babe, you got to do that. I can't do that for you. You know, after my heart attack, 
uh, and this was an ongoing thing, that whole process of, of humiliation of I just can't do what I used to do. I just rest more and I, I've got to hand off responsibilities and I've got anxiety and fear and depression issues that I didn't have before. I just, it, it peels away that facade of capability and just goes, Anthony, you are not able, so get help. One of the things that happened as a result of that is that people around me have an opportunity to step up and show their strength. And perhaps I was not allowing people to flourish, people around me to flourish, because I just stepped in and did everything, because I could. But it turns out when I step back, other people step up. Who knew? Who knew that God didn't need Anthony to do every single thing Anthony thought? So I learned, for one, about the beauty of the body of Christ, like in this church, strengths I didn't know about, people stepping up in ways I didn't know, maybe other people didn't know, maybe they didn't know. So that's awesome. I've learned, among other things, I don't know if I've said this before, I don't do nearly as much prep work on my sermons as I did before my heart attack, because I'm just, frankly, too sleepy a lot of the time to focus, (laughs) It's like, am I going to work on the sermon this afternoon or nap? Going to nap. It's just going to win, folks, just being honest with you. You know what, though? it, It forces me to pray. I'm not trying to be lazy. It forces me to pray more than I used to. Oh, dear God, I did not do sufficient work this week on this sermon. Please do something good out of this paltry thing that I'm offering. Before that, when I had plenty of time, I felt pretty good about what I brought on a Sunday morning. God will be pleased with this. (laughs) Now I'm just like begging. Oh, dear God. Don't let this be a disaster. But I I beg God to be present in my marriage in ways I didn't before because I'm I'm also, just because I'm more tired and my personality is different, I'm not who I was to Sheila. I beg him to be present in my parenting because I'm not who I want to be with my boys. In almost every circumstance in my life, I am now asking God more than ever to be big. I mean, he already is. You know what I mean? I'm I'm just asking him, I need you. That should have been the position of my whole life. And it displays the sufficiency of his grace. God's like, yeah, I've, I've got this. I've always had this, Anthony. Just didn't know. I was reading an article by a Christian lady who has polio. She said, Our culture disdains weakness, but our frailty is a sign of God's workmanship in us. It gets us closer to what we were created to be, completely dependent on God. Several years ago, I realized, and instead of despising the fact that polio had left me with a body that was weakened and compromised, susceptible to pain and fatigue, I could choose to rejoice in it. My weakness made me more like a fragile, easily broken window than a solid brick wall. But just as sunlight pours through a window but is blocked by a wall, I discovered that other people could see God's strength and beauty in me because of the window-like nature of my weakness. And finally, it unites us. Suffering unites us with those who suffer. F.B. Meyer says, The only way in which Christ could bring us to share in his glory was to submit to suffering and death. In no other way could he act as the mediator of the divine life to us who are his brethren. Similarly, if we would become the mediators of help and blessing to others, we must be prepared to suffer. 
I've said this before, but I suspect that God plans to use our greatest areas of suffering to his greatest glory. That as we submit our lives to Christ and as we surrender, and whether that suffering is from pain and hardship, whether it's suffering from unconfessed sin, whatever that suffering is, as we surrender our suffering selves to Jesus and ask him to do a miracle in us, and then he heals us and rebuilds us, I truly believe those things in your life are the things that God will eventually use in surrendered Christians to minister to others with power because you get it. So the former addict has an impact on addicts in ways that people who have never had addictions don't understand because they've been there. They know what's going on. And it's not like people without addictions can't be helpful. I'm just saying people who have been there, they experientially know. This could apply with a lot of things. Former inmates are probably the best ministers to prisoners. Uh, People who have wrestled with sickness are probably in the best position to say to someone who is in the midst of sickness, I understand. I care for you. So be ready. I think God will take your point of greatest suffering and use it for his greatest triumph in your life. If you are surrendered to him and let him do the work that only he can do. But I got to tell you, when God brings you that kind of healing, it won't be simply for your sake, though you'll benefit. It's for the sake of helping you minister with others and show them the love of Christ. Show them the faithfulness of Jesus. Show them hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction through the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's the plan. God passes his comfort on through us. Not that he doesn't do it through his Holy Spirit and his word, but we're like the hands and feet of Jesus, right? And as we experience God's comfort in our suffering, we are better situated to pass on that comfort to others who are suffering as well. We're going to watch a song here by a singer named Ginny Owens. I'm pretty sure I've shown this before. I'm pretty sure I'll show it again. Just because this is just a powerful reminder of how God uses suffering in our lives. We could have a whole other discussion about uh, healing and things like that. But we all have suffered. We all know that God allows suffering in our lives. So when we are suffering, how will God use it? So Ginny Owens is blind. You might be able to tell this as you watch the video. It's from a, a live performance that she did. This is one reason the song moves me so much, is that someone who has wrestled with blindness, I believe her entire life, offers a perspective on suffering and how we surrender ourselves to God in the midst of it um, that I think is worth us considering. So if we're ready, let's go ahead and play it. So Lord, I'm thankful for a suffering Savior, a Savior who understands us. I'm thankful for a glorious Savior, a risen Savior, and whom the suffering wasn't the thing that um, kept him down, but 
though he went through it, the Savior who went through the suffering is glorious in ways we can't comprehend. And Lord, I, I don't understand why everything happens in our life that does. But I, knew, I do know that a Savior who suffered understands and is with us. I do know that a Savior who is glorious offers us to share in his glory on the other side of that suffering. I pray, Lord, we may be a people who uh, surrender ourselves to you, who look to you for our hope, for our salvation, for our refining, for our maturity, and recognize that just like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, for the joy set before us, we can endure what you allow us to go through if you want us to. I pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.